strong. Ash. Bone. And sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please uh, come in and have a seat. Uh, as always, I'd like to introduce the uh, gentleman to my right, my valet, Wilkinson. Pleased to meet you. He assists with our little show by pulling our references from the shelves and uh, reading for us any passages that need quoting. So, uh, during our last show, I announced that I'd be taking questions from listeners for a sort of uh, mailbag uh, segment uh, at the start of our show. Which is why I'm holding this, well, you can't see it, but this, this thing I'm shaking. You don't need to attack the mic. They believe you. I apologize, sir. Anyway, an old postal bag that has been stored in the attic, sent from, what was it, Prague? Yes, uh, using a, a physical bag seemed to give the idea more substance. And uh, since questions were submitted via email, of course, I had Wilkinson uh, print them out in order to have something to put in the bag. Otherwise, we might have done without the bag. The main reason for all this was uh, the envelopes. I, I thought having some actual letters to open and hearing the paper tear, the unfolding of the letter, well, it, it's just better theater that way. It adds uh, anticipation as listeners wonder, could that be my question selected this time? Also, the bag functions as a sort of grab bag to facilitate blind selection of that particular letter. I've even recorded a uh, musical cue announcing our new segment, something uh, modeled after the old uh, Swiss uh, postal horns that were used to uh, alert villagers to the arrival of the uh, mail coaches in the 18th and 19th century. So uh, we're well prepared for all this. Unfortunately, I can't say the same for those who submitted our first batch of questions. That should be clear, at least, to... Uh, all those who received the uh, RFR mailings this week? RFR meaning Reason for Rejection Forms. It's a courtesy we extend to our listeners to help them better understand what we're looking for in submitted questions and where they went wrong. I did add a few personal notes to the return forms to provide a bit more information not provided by the tick boxes. You're sending personal notes? Are you... Lonely? Just where I thought the questioner was close, but needed a nudge in the right direction. You know, you're free to use the town car on off hours if you need to get out and talk to people. I don't keep you here. No, of course. I appreciate the use of the car. Just log your personal gas use. Certainly. Well, let's give this a go. Mailbag. See what we have here? Uh, this one. Okay. 
Uh, uh, Wilkinson, you read it. Dear Mr. Radnauer, I know you don't normally cover topics done elsewhere, but I'd love to hear a show on werewolves because I think you'd dig up material we wouldn't get elsewhere. I know you already mentioned werewolves in the pan episode, but I imagine that's just scratching the surface. Besides, there are lots of good movie clips you could work in. Do you think you might work that topic into the schedule? Best, Douglas Bateman. I was thinking of doing werewolf, so, uh, yes, is the answer. Well, there you have it. Our first mailbag. I think that went rather well. Now on to the meat of the show. Episode 23, Ghastly Saint Stories. So, I am your host, Al Ridenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, as you probably know, uh, explores the uh, intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. Uh, Bone and Sickle is made possible exclusively through the generosity of our Patreon donors, and I'll have more details on all of that at the end of the show. So after our uh, last two devil-themed shows, I thought something a bit angelic would be in order. So we have tonight's uh, episode about saints. And it being Lent, the season of uh, self-denial, we'll be looking particularly at the subject of suffering saints, something saints do very well, of course. And... Uh, a uh, final disclaimer, this is a show about folklore, so we'll be taking all the stories on their own terms, rather than attempting any uh, critical analysis, uh, scientific or skeptical, or what other things people might find in other shows. It's folklore and horror tonight. <laughs> That's a bit from John Huston's 1979 adaptation of Flannery O'Connor's profound and hilarious Southern Gothic uh, classic, Wise Blood. Um, in the clip, we're learning that uh, protagonist uh, Hazel Motes has blinded himself with lie, is uh, wearing a penitential wrap of barbed wire, and spending his days walking on rocks and glass. He's doing penance uh, for a recent murder, but also responding to an uh, existential sense of guilt, uh, where such practices are in response not to a specific individual sin, but to a universal, original sin. It's known as uh, mortification or self-mortification, which is a spiritual exercise we'll be seeing a lot of in the stories of medieval saints in this episode. 15th century Florentine uh, Maria Magdalena de Pazzi 
exhibited an early tendency to embrace such a course of spiritual discipline as uh, recounted in her hagiography written by a Father Fabrini in 1900. It was a wonder to see so small a creature, delicate and gentle, a strong warrior against her flesh. As with children's amusements, by the instinct of their age, so she would find new ways of afflicting her delicate limbs. Her ardent desire for suffering was not appeased by the discipline of a common instrument of penance, but, in addition, she would make crowns and girdles out of the thorny stems of orange trees, and, imitating the passion of Jesus, she would encircle with them her head and sides. Thus encircled and crowned, she would lie in bed at night, not sleeping, but bitterly suffering. Known for her religious ecstasies, first experienced at the age of 12, Dipazzi uh, entered a Carmelite monastery five years later. There she uh, also gained a reputation for uh, hard work and fasting, as well as uh, miraculous feats, including the ability to read thoughts, uh, foretell the future, or even bilocate. The uh, heat of her uh, spiritual fervor seemed at times to impinge on the physical, as in this event mentioned in her hagiography. She became so red and inflamed in the face that she seemed to be burning with a most scorching fever and could find no means to calm herself. She unfastened and violently tore her dress as if to make an opening for the interior fire. On the mistress noticing it and calling the other nuns, they were all highly surprised at such a novelty. Novelty indeed. Her, um... Hagiography also mentions uh, the use of a cilicium or a cilis, that is uh, a hair shirt, a uh, penitential undergarment of uh, animal hide worn with the uh, irritating uh, hair facing inward, or uh, sometimes it's broadened to mean something made of rough burlap, something even created from metal chain, and, and possibly uh, with uh, extra barbs added. It needn't even be a shirt. It can also be something like the uh, thigh band worn by the uh, Opus Dei villain Silas in the uh, Da Vinci Code. In any case, uh, Dipazzi uh, crafted her own using nails set in canvas, but as her um, biographer observes... All of this was a great, but not altogether unusual, torment for her body. But Dipazzi again displays that childhood ingenuity. She gathers a bunch of sharp and uh, thorny scraps from the monastery's uh, firewood storehouse and retreats to a private room. Shutting the door, she undressed and placed it on the floor. She laid on it and with great courage rolled her body over it so that she was all scratched and wounded to such an extent that not only the thorns but also the floor was red with her own blood as the nuns who found her there dressing herself witnessed. So all this is great as uh Dipazzi's uh, hagiographer said, but uh, what about more uh, exotic forms of uh, mortification, like uh, insects? Fifth-century Irish uh, holy woman, uh, Ita of Kiledi, uh, the unofficial patron of the city of Limerick, was known for combating her uh, carnal nature by letting a beetle feed on her flesh. 
in uh, historical retrospect, it, it seems she may have been uh, dying of cancer and allowed uh, some kind of small carnivorous insects to feed on the uh, ulcerous tissue. But in uh, the religious legends, it becomes uh, a massive uh, stag beetle or a beetle as big as a lapdog or pig. Ida refers to it rather fondly as her fosterly and uh, allows it to eat the whole of her side, according to the story. And there's also uh, St. Macarius of Alexandria, who, uh, after swatting a fly, realized he had missed an opportunity to uh, exhibit self-control and self-denial. So he relocated himself to swamps known to be infested with biting fleas and mosquitoes. When he returned six months later, it's said he was so chewed up by insects that he was only recognizable by his voice. A uh, somewhat related story belongs to the uh, 15th century saint and mystic Rita of Kasha, a patron of impossible causes, widows, marital strife, and wounds. This uh, story has to do with her iconic wound. You can recognize Rita uh, in art as she's always portrayed with a single wound in her forehead, one produced by a thorn uh, springing off a crucifix upon which she was meditating. We're told it nearly penetrated to the bone and caused her to faint, but it was an answer to prayers asking that she might share in Christ's passion more directly. According to her uh, hagiography written in 1903 by uh, Father Richard Connolly, the wound became infected, foul-smelling, and home to worms, which gave the saint even greater cause for rejoicing. Father uh, Connolly's uh, story of the saint continues. When Rita was asked, as she sometimes was, what the worms were that occasionally fell from her forehead, she used to reply with a joyous smile, They are my little angels. Christina the Astonishing lived a long, long time ago. Stricken with a seizure at the age of 22. If you're familiar with this 1992 song by uh, Nick Cave, you actually know a fair amount about the uh, 13th century Belgian holy woman called Christina the Astonishing. Uh, as narrated by Mr. Cave, after suffering a seizure at the age of 21, Christina was declared dead and laid in her coffin, only to spring up from her coffin before the funeral mass had ended. She announces to the priest that uh, God has given her the choice of going to heaven or returning uh, to her mortal life to do penance on behalf of the uh, souls in purgatory. Choosing the latter, she uh, awakes to find herself overcome with a new ability to smell the sin of those around her. Disgusted and frightened, she flew to the church ceiling, levitation being uh, another ability uh, acquired on the other side. Later, reports have her flying into the branches of trees and elsewhere, uh, levitating sometimes as a result of uh, religious ecstasies, as well as for uh, purposes of 
escape. Her life of extreme penance for the souls in purgatory included ascetic measures like wearing rags, fasting, sleeping on rocks or in tombs, but also uh, entering burning ovens or throwing herself into the Icy Moose River for hours or days at a time, none of which uh, did her any mortal damage. Um, One story has her uh, allowing the river to carry her into the uh, revolving wheel of a mill, which also doesn't harm her, and uh, qualifies her as unofficial patron, Saint of Millers. And uh, her erratic behavior made her a a patron of uh, the mentally ill. Uh, She was actually never canonized. In, In fact, she was regarded by many contemporaries as either simply insane or even demonically possessed. After a couple imprisonments, Christina submitted herself to the discipline of convent life and... She died at the age of 74, died at the age of 74, in the convent of St. Anna. Now, Christina was hardly the only saint who was said to be able to detect sin by its smell. This ability was also attributed to uh, Joseph of Cupertino, uh, St. John of the Cross, and uh, Gemma Galgani, to uh, name a few. There is a complementary concept to this uh, odor of sin. It's called the odor of sanctity, which would uh, surround the body of a saint. Uh, A sweet scent usually uh, likened to uh, frankincense, myrrh, flowers. And it's mentioned often in what would be the least likely context, uh, namely uh, as coming from uh, the sick room of an ailing saint or even uh, saintly bodies after death, uh, long after death when uh, decomposition should have set in. This uh, quality was attributed to Depazzi, for instance, uh, during her uh, suffering with a prolonged disease that caused uh, teeth to fall from her gums and also to uh, the Neapolitan saint Gerard uh, Maiella, who produced particularly sweet-smelling expectorations while dying of tuberculosis. A particularly strange story is attached to the 14th century uh, saint Lidvina of uh, Shedham, Holland, whose um, ice skating accident at the age of 16 not only made her the uh, patron of ice skaters, but left her partially paralyzed and bedridden and uh, led to the development of perhaps some other conditions like bed sores or something that caused her flesh, we're told, to begin falling from her body. Uh, Not just the flesh, but also uh, bits of bone and intestine are mentioned. Um, As you might have guessed, these uh, decaying bits exuded a miraculously delicious smell and became uh, prized relics kept in a vase in her parents' home. It's also said that uh, a British devotee of Lavina's cult, looking for a cure for his crippled leg, imported the uh, water in which the saint's rotting body was washed. Um, I don't know if it helped, but let's hope so. Lavina uh, relished the physical suffering she endured as a mirror of Christ's uh, passion, Uh, But devotions to her uh, rotting uh, fleshly bits uh, clashed with her sense of humility, and uh, the sweet-smelling chunks were eventually destroyed or buried at her request. Another aspect of sainthood, which uh, 
that tends to strike non-Catholics as rather ghastly is the interest in uh, the mortal remains of these uh, holy figures. In cases of those who've led exemplary lives, incorruptibility or the uh, unnatural preservation of the body after death is usually regarded as a confirmation of sainthood. Uh, discovery of this usually happens when, for whatever reason, a body must be transferred from uh, one resting place to another, and if uh, possible, the incorrupt body will be put on display for the faithful. According to one survey, there are over 150 saints regarded as incorrupt, or having been incorrupt, as the definition is uh, more subjective than you may think. Um, preservation that seems unnaturally long but does not endure forever uh, may also be counted as incorruption, as may uh, partial preservation, as uh, with stories of uh, saints' arms preserved while the rest of the body falls away. Uh, it's usually the arm said to be blessed by its good deeds. And it's all relative. Genuinely unusual preservation of bodies, which are already centuries old, won't look like uh, someone who's just fallen asleep. As uh, displayed bodies uh, reach a state closer to crumbling mummies, uh, monks and nuns have often helped out with their glass eyes or a more wholesome overlay of uh, expertly sculpted and colored wax. Or uh, nowadays, uh, the, the Italian stigmatic uh, Padre Pio, who died in uh, 1968, now wears a very uh, convincing silicone mask. And the intent isn't uh, necessarily deceptive, uh, so it's said, as the body is uh, here being regarded more as an effigy representing the saint at the time of their death or at the uh, original discovery of their uh, unnaturally preserved body. Of course, uh, there are many other reasons one might propose for any uh, unusual preservation and uh, Perhaps there are just as many letters signed by medical men whose uh, post-mortem examination is attested something, uh, if not supernatural, at least highly unusual. Uh, though we could assume uh, Catholic uh, examiners in this case might be preferred. Regardless, there are cases that seem noteworthy. Uh, incorrupt bodies found uh, buried under lime, which was intended to speed the uh, disintegration so that bones could be more uh, quickly transferred to an ossuary or uh, bodies buried without coffins, or even floating in mud from heavy rains, such as the case of St. Charbel Marcouf of Lebanon. Uh, many, if not most, of these bodies are also said to exude that particular odor of sanctity. And some are said to miraculously produce an endless flow of uh, sweet-smelling oil known as manna, which is uh, something I've actually mentioned in the context of St. Nicholas and St. Valpurga in earlier episodes. In a more uh, clearly folkloric vein are a number of stories in which these uh, mummified saints are reported to have been uh, animated by the spirit of their deceased owners. In 1625, after a 171-year slumber, Saint uh, Rita of Kasha was uh, said to have opened her eyes during a mass held in honor of her beatification, showing undead displeasure at uh, some kind of unruliness during the ceremony. 
Her body, which is mostly recumbent, though propped up a bit, is said to uh, turn slowly from side to side over the years, as well as bob up closer to the viewing glass on her feast day. Three knocks from within her glass coffin herald the death of a sister within the order. And there's a story from the uh, hagiography of St. Mary Magdalena de Pazzi. Immediately after her funeral, one man uh, lingered at the bier. All at once, an attending Jesuit, uh, gazing upon the body, saw that it moved the head and turned the face to the opposite side. Seeking the reason for it, he was unable to find any natural cause, as neither the pillow cushion, nor the vestments, nor the bier had been touched. Sensibly, the uh, Jesuit uh, proposed that the saint might be turning away from the stranger's indwelling impurity and lasciviousness. Naturally, the uh, frightened stranger confessed his evil ways and thus began a more virtuous life. In 1649, in the uh, San Damiano convent in Assisi, a woman suffering demonic possession was brought before the incorrupt body of the uh, blessed Antonio da Stronaconi, who sat up and raised one hand. The body of Saint uh, Agnes of Montepulciano uh, was said to have raised a foot so that Saint Catherine of Siena might more easily administer a kiss. Some years after the death of the blessed uh, Pietro de Gubbio in 1160, the uh, Augustinian brothers of his monastery were shocked to hear a voice answer to their nightly chanting of the Te Deum. Opening the tomb, they found the monk's body kneeling with hands clasped and mouth agape. The voice was said to sing from the crypt for many years to come. And uh, what about Eustochio Calafato of Messina, Italy? In 1615, 133 years after her death, Messina was experiencing constant tremors and panics about earthquakes. The sisters of the uh, convent where Eustochio was buried uh, prayed, but it seemed to have little effect against the threat, so it was decided to remove the saint's body from the crypt and position it in its former seat in the choir stall. One night, during the night prayers, after imploring their deceased sister to offer her own prayers for the city, the obedient corpse opened her lips and from her mouth issued the first lines of the psalm to be chanted. The stunned sisters joined in and during the Gloria, the corpse was seen to bow its head. With this, the quaking of the earth ceased. On Thursdays about midnight, the wounds began to bleed slowly and blood would ooze from her eyes. Thus the drama of the passion began. From the hours of 12 to 3 in the afternoon on Fridays, she represented the crucifixion. She went into ecstasy, and her right arm straightened out as though she were on a cross. Her left arm was tied and could not move. Her chest came forward and shoulders went backward as if pulled by the arms. When this took place, the arm was wrenched from the socket and remained outstretched until after the ecstasy. Then a doctor was called and the arm was rotated back into place. This sometimes took a half hour to perform and was accompanied with excruciating pain. The doctor couldn't understand how she could suffer so much. Suffer. 
suffers. So I'll be talking now a bit about stigmatics, with our first being uh, Marie-Rose uh, Theron, known as the uh, Little Rose of Woonsocket, Rhode Island. What you heard was an old recording describing the uh, phases or onset of her stigmatic episodes, which occurred with regularity from 1929 until her death in 1936. As with all stigmatics, her uh, episodes were experienced in an ecstatic state of identification with Christ's passion. They would last over several days, culminating on Fridays, the day of the crucifixion. The stigmata traditionally reflect the five wounds of Christ, being uh, the pears in his feet and his hands and the uh, spear wound in his side. But Ferran also uh, experienced wounds simulating those from Christ's thorny crown and uh, injuries associated with Christ's uh, further scourging by uh, Roman soldiers. The blood, which was also said to produce a sweet odor, is uh, further described. She was simply a blot of blood. Her entire face was unrecognizable. And? At 11 a.m., the cavities of both eyes were filled to the brim. All of this, uh, mind you, according to the words of the faithful. Some general info on uh, stigmatics. According to the uh, French physician Imbert Goubier, who published a uh, two-volume study of the phenomenon in 1894, there have been 321 stigmatics considered genuine, with a few more naturally appearing since then. He reported that the majority, by far, are female, uh, most being Italian. It also seems a very large portion were sickly in youth and bedridden later, therefore uh, physically prompted to embrace the Catholic concept of the victim's soul. This uh, notion suggests it is given to certain individuals to suffer more greatly, thereby identifying with Christ to the extent that their individual suffering shares in the uh, redemption of others. St. Francis of Assisi, yes, the, the one preaching to all the cute little birds and animals, uh, was the first stigmatic. His uh, stigmatization, two years before his death in 1226, occurred during a vision of a seraph or six-winged angel uh, nailed to a cross, and is often uh, fantastically uh, represented in art by rays from the seraph's five wounds piercing the saint. Uh, interestingly, these uh, stigmata were not empty holes, but according to contemporary uh, Thomas of Solano's uh, account, exhibited the heads of the nails appearing in the palms of his hands and on the upper sides of his feet. Out of uh, humility, Francis attempted to hide the wounds, but was ultimately unable to, uh, setting a pattern for most uh, stigmatic stories uh, henceforth. just inside the threshold, awestruck at a strange and most frightful spectacle. Blood flowed thinly and continuously in an inch-wide stream from Teresa's lower eyelids. Her gaze was focused upward on the spiritual eye within the central forehead. The cloth wrapped around her head was drenched in blood from the stigmata wounds of the crown of thorns. 
The white garment was redly splotched from the wound in her side at the spot where Christ's body had suffered the final indignity of the soldier's spear thrust. Teresa's hands were extended in a gesture, maternal, pleading, murmuring words in a foreign tongue. She spoke with slightly quivering lips to persons visible before her inner sight. At this moment, I heard a loud thud behind me. The uh, commotion was caused by the uh, previously mentioned Mr. Wright fainting at the sight of it all. The narrator is the Indian guru, uh, Paramahansa Yogananda. He was uh, visiting the Bavarian stigmatic Teresa Neumann in her home in uh, 1935. Neumann's uh, story follows a course similar to uh, Little Rose Veron with a uh, early childhood fall followed by a series of possibly related medical problems, some of which, like uh, blindness, were said by Neumann to have been miraculously cured along the way. Uh, all of this begins in 1918, with uh, Stigmata first appearing during Lent, 1926, and remaining until her death in 1962. She also ends up bedridden, developing horrific bed sores uh, to boot. Beginning in 1928, she was uh, continuously visited by various investigators, ecclesiastic and medical. Uh, pushed by popular devotion, her process for beatification was begun in 2005. Medical evaluations of uh, the phenomena were ambivalent to skeptical. Though no mechanism of fraud was detected, it was noted that uh, Neumann only allowed herself to be observed uh, once blood had appeared, and it was never observed to actually trickle from her wounds. Neumann also claimed to have sustained herself on nothing but the Holy Eucharist from 1923 to the end of her life, which, uh, all on the surface, uh, hardly would have jived with her uh, hefty girth. In any case, uh, images and video of her sitting up in her bed with eyes uh, caked and streaming with blood are uh, supremely and satisfyingly uh, horrific. And so I'll post some of those on the site. It's the, uh, it's the classic Catholic tears of blood look, beloved by goth girls everywhere. One more uh, grisly first-hand account of the stigmatic, this one describing Maria Domenica Lazzari of uh, South Tyrol, uh, written in, in an 1850 letter by the British historian of religion, Thomas William Allies. He describes his encounter with the stigmatic, beginning with uh, wounds along Lazzari's hairline that approximate uh, injuries from uh, a crown of thorns. Beneath this row of punctures, he notes... A dry crust or mask of blood. Her breast heaved with a sort of convulsion, and her teeth chattered. He visits the next day, observing... The punctures round the forehead had been bleeding, and were open, so that the mask of blood was thicker, and very terrible to look at. The sight is so fearful that a person of weak nerves would probably be overcome by it. There's a particularly alarming watercolor of all this executed by another visitor, which uh, I'll also post on the site, or a link to. Um, also bedridden for decades, Lazzari, or the Living Crucifix, as she was called, uh, was uh, also said to uh, exhibit uh, knowledge of languages she had never studied, uh, and of places and events beyond the world of her bedroom uh, through bilocation, according to uh, some sources. 
She died in 1848, uh, her corpse perfuming the air with the odor of sanctity. One last stigmatic to wrap up our show. Uh, the last two I've mentioned are relatively obscure figures, particularly Lazzari, but our next, outside of being a visionary stigmatic, was a scholastic philosopher, a doctor of the church, and important diplomat of the uh, Roman Pope, helping to end the Avignon papacy of the 1300s, uh, namely Catherine of Siena. In keeping with our theme, however, I will only be exploring the more ghastly aspects of her sainthood, which began with her mystical marriage to Christ at the age of 21. This uh, symbolic betrothal was uh, betokened by a particularly strange symbol mentioned in a letter by Catherine as a ring of flesh, which has traditionally been understood to mean Christ's foreskin. An important relic in medieval times, which I should really explore further in another episode or, or uh, Patreon materials. We'll see. Uh, Catherine was also uh, a rigorous ascetic, exhibiting uh, such uh, devotion to fasting that her spiritual advisor, Raymond of Capua, would uh, beg her to eat some small morsels of food, which she would violently vomit back out, sometimes accompanied by blood. Another strange story involves her ingesting something very few of us would consider eating. Raymond of uh, Capua describes the uh, saint as struggling with revulsion at the task of treating the ulcers of a fellow sister, and then... Filled with a holy anger against herself, she said, Thou shalt swallow what inspires thee with such horror, and immediately, collecting in a saucer the water in which she had washed what flowed from the wound, she went aside and drank the whole. Later, she tells her confessor, Father, I assure you that in my whole life, I never tasted anything so sweet and so agreeable. Similar stories, by the way, are told of St. Catherine of Genoa forcing herself to eat the pus from the wounds of plague victims, and uh, St. Veronica Giuliani eating spiders and cleaning spider webs with her tongue, too. Catherine of Siena's overcoming of her natural revulsion at the wounds of her sister was said to have uh, delighted her heavenly bridegroom, and he rewarded her in a vision showing her the wound in his side, saying, Drink, daughter, that luscious beverage which flows from my side. It will inebriate thy soul with sweetness, and will also plunge in a sea of delight thy body. Catherine's response, quite naturally, was one of ecstasy. Ecstasy's experience like a those of Catherine of Siena are hard for modern secular minds to grasp. I imagine many of you listening have uh, found yourselves full of uh, rather different feelings, perhaps uh, something closer to uh, revulsion. I'd like to remedy this with one last story involving neither blood nor pus or flesh-eating beetles. Um, it's about a flower, a rosebud kept in the Basilica San Domenico in Siena, because uh, this is again about St. Catherine of Siena. And, uh, well, to be honest, it's also about a mummified head belonging, as you might guess, to Catherine. So, the story. Uh, because she died in Rome, this is where she was initially buried. A bit later, when her body, not incorrupt, by the way, was being moved from the cemetery outdoors to a crypt within the church, Raymond of Capua recognized an opportunity to provide the city of Siena with a relic of their native saint. 
Though no transfer of the body had been authorized, Raymond decided that uh, Sienna deserved at least a portion of their saint, uh, just the uh, head, as they say, which he had detached from the neck uh, by the gravediggers, a task made simpler by the fact that the outdoor grave and body had recently been made soggy by rains. The saint's head was hidden in a bag, but as it was being removed from the premises, church guards demanded to see the contents of this uh, suspicious-looking bag. A quick prayer to St. Catherine, and when the bag was opened, they found no soggy head of a corpse, but hundreds of fresh, fragrant rose petals. Of course, once safely away, the petals transformed back again into the saint's head, which was welcomed into Siena with a solemn procession. And so to this day, the mummified head of St. Catherine can be seen in an ornate reliquary of Siena's Basilica San Domenico, uh, sharing a vitrine with a dried rose. I do hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you uh, may have had the opportunity to share episodes you've been listening to with friends. We uh, particularly appreciate reviews as these are the best way to raise the show's visibility on Apple Podcasts and other distributors. If you've uh, left a review, by all means, let me know and I'll give you a little shout out uh, in this segment. Our website, boneandsickle.com, provides links to our Facebook group and Twitter along with show notes, uh, replete with images and video links to films and trailers and clips and music used in the program. Music and sound design otherwise are all original for the show. You can also find our donor link on the site. Uh, Patreon members have a choice of rewards, including exclusive access to uh, extra elements that go into the making of the show, uh, digital downloads of rare books used in preparation, uh, the show soundscapes you hear in the background, and my Krampus book, as well as a signed 8x10 photo of Wilkinson suitable for framing and adulation. Uh, donation levels begin at $1 a month, and your support via Patreon is the uh, sole support that makes possible me continuing to regularly make them available this uh, rather time-consuming production. A special thanks to new patrons Jeremy Floyd Rentang, Jason Blakey, Matt Gerdek, Chase T. Hopper, and Jeremy Floyd. I'd also like to thank those who recently posted show reviews, namely Andrew Hawkins, Maddie Goad, Gil the Kid, and... Splig 6421. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidnauer. Wilkinson is played by Rick Gallagher. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>